Well, good morning once again, church. It's good to see you. I'm glad that you've joined us today. And we're looking forward to our continuing journey through the story. We're taking a walk from uh, Genesis to Revelation over the next several months. And we're just enjoying not only hearing different stories and different parts of it, but understanding how this all weaves together into one uh, master story that God himself has written for us. So uh, where we're at today as we're in this journey, uh, we're actually leaving the book of Genesis. And Genesis, by definition, means beginnings. All right, so that just makes sense. First book in the Bible. We start with Genesis, talk about the beginnings, and we've been, we've been there now for a, a couple of weeks, and we're beginning to move out of that. Before we do, I, I want to share just a little bit about um, uh, something that happened this past weekend. You're, you're going to see a picture up on the screen. Uh, those are some lovely people, aren't they? We took a, we took a trip to uh, the Creation Museum and the Ark Encounter and there's about 23 of us. We had a great time over the weekend. And, I, and just the fact where we've been in Genesis, it's just even made it all come alive even more to me. It just was really exciting. And uh, this is a wonderful group of people. And man, I have sermon material for years based on this trip. This is, <laughs> wow, some of it I can't share. But uh, yeah, what's, what happens in the van stays in the van, okay? But we're going to have a lot of, but we had a great time. And we learned, uh, we learned or reminded about just some, impactful truths about the Word of God. And here's one thing that, that I knew, but it just came back to my mind. When we talk about science, and whether you're in school or you've, you've heard about it, and, and you know, there's this big controversy that, that if you're a biblicist, you're not scientific. Here's the truth. Scientists and, and biblical scientists, we're both looking at the same science. We're both looking and we're, we're talking about the same things, the same archaeological digs, the same dinosaurs. We're looking at the same science. The difference is the starting point. If you believe the scriptures, you still believe in science, but you believe it all started where we began a few weeks ago, Genesis 1, verse number 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's the difference. Now, if you don't want to go there, then you've got to start somewhere else, and that's where the, the, the philosophy, the, the different opinions come in, and that's what makes a difference. We just simply believe that God made it very clear. I started all of this. In the beginning, God Created. And I think God's giving us a handshake right now. Okay, that's a hand clap. Okay. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And if we start there, then everything begins to fall into place. And we see not only the, the Bible come alive, but we see our lives beginning to take shape and purpose because God who started it had a reason for all of it. And he has a story that he has been, his, as we talk about the upper story that God has made and is continuing in our perspective to continue to write. That's, what it, that's where it all begins. In the beginning, God. Well, that's where we've been in Genesis. Today, we take, a, take our first step into the second book of the Bible, referred to as Exodus. Now, if in case you're unfamiliar with the term Exodus, which I think most of you probably understand, by simple definition, it's a situation in which many people leave a place at the same time. That's just a simple definition. A mass Exodus. A group of people all leave at the same time. Kind of like last night at the end of the Wrigley Field game, correct? How many of you were excited about that, all right? How many of you were surprised by that? No, I'm just kidding. Okay, you're, you're, you're in. I give the Cubs a lot, of hard, a lot of grief, but congratulations, right? Okay, but think about this. At the end of that game, you got, what, 40-some thousand people all in one little group, and they all disperse at once. That's exodus. That's what this term means. It means a, a large group of people all leaving at the same time. Now, what we have in the book of Exodus is we have literally a people, the Bible refers to them as 600,000 at least men, soldiers, foot soldiers, plus women and children and those who couldn't fight. So we've got, we've got easy million and a half, two million people all leaving, relocating to a new place all at once. Now, that's Exodus, correct? You understand? That's why the book is what it is. This whole group of people leaving at the same time, that's the idea of Exodus. But there's another word. Another word that helps describe this incredible phenomenon. We know it is Exodus. That's its definition. But this massive group of people was more than an Exodus. And this is where we come to chapter 4 that we're looking at this week. It was deliverance. Now, that's not the title. Of the, we're not talking about the title of a movie from a few years back, okay? We're talking about deliverance. 
the idea of, of a significant work God's doing in his people's life, the exodus was a way that it happened, but it truly was a deliverance. Deliverance, by definition, is an action of being rescued or being set free. That's the idea of deliverance. And that's what happened with these million-plus people is they were literally being delivered, an act of God delivering them from peril. So today, chapter number four, the part of the story, that chapter is entitled Deliverance. I hope many of you were able to read through it and, and kind of refresh your memory on where this story has come from and where it's going. But we're going to pull out some wonderful truths from what this chapter tells us about the description of these events in the life of Israel. Now, deliverance is a word that we all, let's just be honest, we all know that in some form or fashion, we need to experience some kind of deliverance, rescue, if you would, at some point in our life. Just the first definition, just a rescue, something that you're being saved from, okay? All of us have experienced that. Uh, there's, a, there's a time that you've fallen or you've been hurt and you cry out for help, okay? You're crying out for deliverance. You're crying out for a rescue. Does that make sense? Yesterday, we were sitting in a restaurant, crowded restaurant, and we're all eating and going on. All of a sudden, we hear, help, help, help. And then a man across the, in line had collapsed, had fallen face first. And so everyone, and, and the people come running to his side. What is that? That's deliverance. That's a rescue. So all of us at some point have experienced or will experience a need of, of we've fallen or we've been hurt or, so, or we've, we're in a situation where we need someone to pull us up or we need someone to help us. That's, that's a definition of, of deliverance. But the second part of this definition is being set free. Something that's unpleasant, something that's holding on to you, something you can't, you can't get loose from, and you need deliverance in the idea of freedom. And both of these are the, the idea of deliverance that these people that we know as Israel in Egypt are going to experience. Now, as we talk about the upper story, the fact of God's unchanging story that he's working and we can't, do, we can't stop it, we can't do anything about it, but it intersects with where we live. It intersects with this lower story. And sometimes from our perspective, this lower story just doesn't make any sense, especially when we're not thinking that there is an upper story going on behind and here in this particular story, in my opinion, is one of those where it really, it gets kind of strange to me. Why do some of these things happen the way that they, that they did? Let me back up. A couple weeks ago, we talked about how God was going, was in this journey, that's what this story is about, of bringing us back. He created humankind, man fell, and now God's in, this, in the, the work of bringing us back to him. And to do that, he, had to, he developed a nation, a people, and the first guy's name was, somebody tell me, Abraham. Thank you, okay? And it wasn't Lincoln, okay? <laughs> All right? We're talking Abraham. Abraham, the, the, the great, the father, Ab Father Abraham, he started it all, and, and that's how everything gets going is with, with Abraham. Not only did God promise to bless Abraham, he said that I will bless all nations because of you, Abraham. So this is a, a global, universal thing that God is doing, and that's how the story begins, through this man named Abraham. But he also promised Abraham that there will be, you will have a geographical place, a location. I'm giving you a land. A land, I am promising you that this land will be yours. And we know that today as the nation of Israel with obviously some border issues, but we know that the basic concept is the nation of, of Israel, that geographical location. He gave that to Abraham. He blessed Abraham and he said things are going to, and by his grandson, Jacob, things begin to, to start to move. Jacob has 12 sons and these descendants are starting to now to, to fill up, if you would. But he also tells Isaac and he tells Jacob that this land where you're living is yours. This promised land, this is your, for the people that I'm developing to, to bring people back to me, I've also given them a land and this is yours. They were all living in the land of promise, but this is where it starts to get a little confusing to me. Jacob's living there. His sons are growing up there. But now, as we left the story last week, they're no longer in that land. They've moved now to a place called Egypt. And, and Jacob and his 70-some people in his family, all of his kin, all of the descendants, about 70 of them, plus some other kids, they all, 70 of them, they moved to Egypt. 
and you're thinking, oh, how does this work, God? Why is it that, that Jacob moves now? And, and now we find that Joseph, the reason why they moved, he is set up in this king and, and everything's good. They've got a place to live and all these, everything seems to be good, but it's, you're scratching your head saying, but, but if you promised them that land, why allow them to move here? And let's pick up the story, Exodus chapter number one, verse number six. The story says this, now Joseph and all of his brothers and all that generation died. But the, the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly. They increased in numbers, and they became so numerous that the land was filled with them. That's what God said would happen. But remember, they're not in the promise. They're in Egypt when all this is happening. But look at the next phrase. Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. Now there's the twist. We have him living in, in Egypt, but now a Pharaoh raises up, and depending on your version, he didn't even know Joseph. In this version, it says he could care less about Joseph. He didn't have any, any concerns. There was nothing about this. That Joseph, who was basically his response, I don't care. All he sees, all Pharaoh sees, is this nation within theirs, this separate nation is growing up, and they're becoming a threat to him and his country of Egypt. That's all Pharaoh sees. He doesn't care about the past. And that's what seems odd to me. Why did they have to move in the first place? I mean, why were they in this place? Why didn't they just stay in the prom? Why didn't God let them? That was their property. Why didn't God say, now, Joseph, you come back home and we'll start this thing off. Why do what they did the way that God said to do it? If God was really in control of things, why didn't you just keep them there in the promised land? Several things I want to point out today. First one I want you to hope you can grab is this. As we're walking through this story, in God's story, the upper story, remember this, a detour, as we see it, a detour is not necessarily a setback. Something that goes the way we didn't intend is not necessarily a, a setback. By definition, a detour is a deviation from the course, a roundabout way of getting, you didn't want to go that way, you're, but, but you, you, know what I, you know what I mean. It's that I, it, but here's the point that I want you to understand about this kind of detour. There's not really anything you can do about it. I mean, you're headed to Springfield one, one day, and you're on 29, the beautiful road that they've taken 400 years to build, and you're on your way to Springfield... <laughs> It's kind of like Moses in Egypt, right? It took you. Anyway, you're on your, way to, you're on your way to Springfield, and suddenly you come up and it says road closed. And you're going to have to you know, go through Barry or something to get around. It just gives you signs. That's, nothing, that's out of your control. If you want to get from point A to point B, you can't go the straight way that you thought you could before. You've got to make a detour. But you didn't do anything. It wasn't your fault. You didn't tell them to fix the road on that day. There was, whatever the reason was, that wasn't your fault. But if you're going to get there, you're going to have to follow the detour and go around. And that's exactly where we find Israel, Jacob's family. They were in Egypt, but they weren't there by accident. There was, there was a reason why God wanted them there. And in our perspective, in their perspective, perhaps that looks like a detour. God, you want us to be in this promised land. Now we're in Egypt, and it wasn't, in fact... Not only was it not an accident, I want to give you some history on this. We, we kind of know about it, but over 200 years before this event, over 200 years before this happened, we see God was all over this. 200 years before Joseph was even born, the guy that kind of gets him there, before he was even born, if you look in Genesis 15, here's what we know about his great-grandfather, Abraham. Listen to this. The Lord said to Abraham, Know for certain that for 400 years, your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own. They will be enslaved and mistreated there. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. That's 200 years before Joseph's even born. God's already told him this was going to happen. God's all over this. This wasn't a mistake. This wasn't an accident. This was God saying, this is the route I want you to take. You go on to his, his grandson, Jacob, and look what it says. In Genesis 46, and God spoke to Israel or Jacob in a vision. He said, do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for I will make you into a great nation there. I will go down to Egypt with you, and I will surely bring you back again. God's all over this. This is an accident. God put this, we would call it a detour. God put this change of course, this roundabout way. I want you to, this promised land is yours, but I want you in Egypt for a reason. And he allows them, Jacob actually, he actually said, go, Jacob, this is what I want you to do. And then, of course, last week we talked about the great-grandson Joseph. And if you remember what Joseph said at the end, Genesis 50, Joseph said to his brothers, 
I'm about to die, but God will surely come to your aid and take you up out of this land. Now, remember, there's nothing wrong here. They're having a great time. But he said, this isn't permanent, guys. At some point, God's going to take you out of this land to the land he promised an oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Joseph made the Israelites swear on oath and said, God will surely come to your aid, and then you must carry my bones from this place. Now, technically, part of the reason they're they're in Egypt is because Jacob's sons, they sinned against Joseph and sold him there. But do you understand upper story now? God's been working this all along. He wanted them in Egypt for a reason. He told Abraham they were going there. He told Jacob, this is where I want you to be. He tells Joseph, this is, you're good, but you're not going to be here forever. I got to give you a spoiler alert. You'll see it on the screen. Just so you know where this is all is heading in, a, in Exodus chapter 13. Uh, could you show it on the screen? Because I don't have it written down. Exodus 13, next verse. There we go. Chapters 13, verse 17. Here's what happens at the end of the story for today. When Pharaoh let the people go, look at this. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him. Now, do you realize how many years there was between when Joseph said that and when that happens? 430 years. Now, that's some detour. If it took you 430 years to get to Springfield, most of you would probably give up by then, right? You understand what I'm saying? This is a detour, but it's not a setback. This is what God wanted them to do. This is how God wanted them to go. This was the plan that God had for them. But why? Now, I can't answer that whole question, but I do know that the Bible gives us some great reasons, or at least a picture of the reason why. And there could be many. But one of the biggest rich pictures is, from this point on, Egypt becomes a living picture. Egypt and Israel leaving becomes a living picture of the condition of the humankind and our, our need for deliverance. Egypt becomes a picture of the world, of the enemy, of the kingdom of darkness, of the thing that holds us back and we need rescued from, or the things in our life that hold us back and we need delivered from. Egypt becomes that picture from here throughout the scripture of things that, that we need a, an idea of those who are, are, are in, in the picture of saying, listen, I need to be delivered. Now, as, as you're going along and uh, you, you talk about what all this was happening. This, this picture of Israel in, in Egypt, and they're going to, we're going to find out that they're in slavery. And all, but understand, their physical slavery was just a picture of their deepest need. What they didn't realize is their need was not just because they, they couldn't do what they wanted and they weren't where they wanted to be. Their deepest need was something that was, deep, was a spiritual need within them. And Egypt and Israel becomes this for the rest of the scriptures now begins to set this pattern that this is what God wants to do and is in desiring to do for all of us is to see us delivered from those things, rescued from those things that are destroying us, delivered from those things that are tying us down. It, it, just a couple of millennia before, we find this story. We know how Adam and Eve got the ball rolling, right? How that they sinned against God. And, and what, they, what we find now is they're in spiritual slavery. But then it was obvious. We sin, God throws them out of the garden. Now they're, but, but here's what happens. This is 2,000 or so years later. People no longer feel that same bondage of slavery. Adam and Eve, I mean, it was pretty plain. Yesterday, we were eating in a perfect garden. Today, we're, we're hoeing out thorns out of the ground. It was that drastic. But over the course of a couple thousand years, life just kind of goes on, and you kind of get used to it. And this is the norm, and this is what life is. And this is who we are. And, and people begin to, not, to forget about the fact that all this is the course of sin, and, and we're fighting these things. And it's just you have life and death, and it's all just a, you know, just the, the way that things happen. And God's got to get his people to remember again that there is a problem. There is a bondage that has you enslaved and you have not even, you don't even realize it any longer. You don't even realize that your spiritual life is, is no longer yours, that you are literally in this life. And today it's no different. Even to this day, we have so many, life has just gone on. Life, death, thousands of years since the Bible, is, but the point is still the same. There is a bond, there is slavery, there is a, an enemy against us that has been against us all these thousands of years, and, and we just haven't even realized it. Part of the reason God allowed this to happen was to get his people to realize that you are in bondage and you need me to rescue you, to deliver you from those very things. And it leads us to chapter 2, verse 23. It's page 45 in your books. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and they cried out, and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. 
God heard their groaning and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And so God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. Remember, we're talking upper and lower story. God has always cared about them. But now they finally realize we need God. It took them 400 years to figure this out. But finally, in the midst of their slavery, and they realize we can't do anything about this, we finally realize who we need. And it's not, we can't change this unless God moves in. And do you realize, folks, that's the point. God wants all of us to understand that in this life, we, we need him. And at some points, we just have to come to the point where all we have is our knees and our cry to God. And that's exactly where we need to be, to the point where we recognize that my greatest need is to know God. And I need salvation. I need delivered. And that's, that's where Israel comes in. It starts with the understanding that I need this. So here's what happens. And some of you know the story. If you read it this week, you understand God calls a man by the name of Moses. And we're going to see Moses' name over the next several chapters. He's a huge character in this story that God is, is, is writing about bringing us back. But he calls Moses to lead the people. And if you remember, Moses was at the very beginning very hesitant, to say the least. In fact, at one point he said, God, send somebody else. I don't want to do this. I can't. I don't. He didn't feel capable. He didn't, he didn't want to have anything to do with this. But ultimately he submits and he goes back. He tells the people, first of all, listen, God has heard your cry. He's going to deliver you. And the first thing the people did is say, yeah, so thank you, God. You've heard us. But Pharaoh wasn't quite as excited about that news. Pharaoh's response was, and who is this Lord person? I don't even know this Lord you're talking about. And so basically, no, you can't go. You've got to stay right here. You're my slaves now. You're my people. And he keeps them in that place. And Pharaoh actually then makes it worse on the people, actually makes their slavery worse. And the people come back to Moses and say, Moses, just back off. You're making it worse on us. That sounded great, but it's not going to work. And so Moses comes back to God and he said, God, why this? You called me and now this. And again, we see these detours and these things that don't make any sense. But remember, God is still working in all of these things. And that's where we come to chapter number 6. And I want you to see as we get to chapter number 6 in the book of Exodus, for the next couple pages, we're going to see basically a theology of deliverance. Or maybe you call it an anatomy of deliverance. This is what deliverance looks like. This is what we need in our lives. This is what these people needed. This is what God begins to set this picture now of what deliverance is going to look like throughout the Scriptures. And the first thing that I notice is this. God's deliverance is both powerful and personal. When Moses comes to God, he says, God, why this? It's just getting worse. It's, nothing's happening. From, from Israel's perspective now, this is an impossible situation. Remember, they're defeated slaves at this point. They've been in this for 430 years. They don't know anything but slavery. And now they, they've been told by Pharaoh, you can't leave. They feel completely beaten down. They feel completely inept, unable. Moses is, is himself doesn't feel like he's capable. They're at this point where there's nothing they feel they can do. And that's where God moves in. And I want you to listen how God describes what he's going to do. Chapter number 6. Here's what, here's what God says. Verse 1, Then the Lord said to Moses, Now you see what I will do to Pharaoh. I love that. Moses, just chill, okay? Now I know that's in the, in the margin somewhere, but that's basically what he says. Moses, just chill. I want you to sit back and watch what I'm going to do. And keep reading. He says, Because of my mighty hand, he will let them go. Because of my mighty hand, he will drive them out of his country. Do you realize what he just said? If Pharaoh's not only going to let you go, he's going to make you go. He's not going to want you here anymore. When I get through with him, he's going to say, get out of my country. Now that's what God's going to do. That's the power. Now keep reading. You go down a couple of verses, and here's what he says. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the Israelites, whom the Egyptians are enslaving. I've remembered my covenant, and I'll listen to these next things. Therefore, say to the Israelites, I am the Lord. I will bring you up from out of the yoke of the, of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm with mighty acts of, uh, acts of judgment. Do you hear what God's saying? Moses, tell the people, uh, God's going to show up and he's going to do something that, that Pharaoh and you have never seen before. And it's going to, this is power. This is God saying, I don't care who Pharaoh thinks he is. I'm in charge here. I am in control here. And God is going to show his power in this incredible, these acts of judgment. Deliverance is going to include two things. One, it's defeating of the enemy. 
It's going to defeat the enemy who we know is Pharaoh in this story. But think of that. Any enemy, that's, in, that's part of deliverance. He defeats the enemy. But then the second thing is he will set the people free. In this, he defeats the enemy with his mighty arm, but then he sets the people free. And that's what deliverance comes down to. With his power, God doing what he wants to do, I will deliver God is the one who will strike a blow against them. And in this particular story, it happens to be Pharaoh, but it, it, it's something in your life that seems untouchable. It's something in your life that seems that you can't have no control over, that you can't defeat, you can't see victory over. And God is saying, just watch what I can do. That's the power of God. That's deliverance. It's to understand not only who I am, but understand the power that God has to deliver or to rescue in any way that he sees fit. There is no enemy that can stand against God. No matter what we're facing, there's no enemy. The book of 1 John puts it this way, and I love it. It's one of my favorite, 1 John 4, 4. Greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. The, the, those of us who know Christ, we've we got to, to learn and to live in that statement that there is a God and he is not intimidated by any pharaohs, whoever they may be and whatever they may do in the world or in our lives. God is all-powerful. God is in control. But be, besides just striking this death blow, God goes on to, to set the people free. Think about what that means. There are people who have set through our services right next to you. You may not even realize this, but there are people who set through our services that do not believe that they're forgivable. They've done too much. They've gone too far. They're too enslaved. They've tried everything and they just can't get free. And they're sitting right here on a weekly basis. And, and I want you, if you're one of them or if you know someone like that, to hear this. The power of God came to set a people who had been enslaved for 400 years, set them free. Doesn't matter how powerful Pharaoh was. God is always God. And he not only defeats Pharaoh, he's going to set the people free. From this point on, there's a phrase that becomes popular in the book, in the story. And it goes through Israel, but it becomes something, and it's three little, or three little words, out of Egypt. You're going to see that phrase now throughout the scriptures, that when God wants to show, just remind us how powerful he is to rescue us, deliver us, rescue his people, bring them back. He'll use that word phrase, out of Egypt. Remember Egypt. Remember what I did. Remember my power. Remember what I can do. In fact, Exodus 20, verse 2, he says to Israel, just a few, we're going to hear that just a few days later. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. That's the power of God. It doesn't matter what we've gone through or what we're facing. It doesn't matter what sin has got a hold of us, the shame, the guilt. God says, I, look what I'm going to do to Egypt and remember that from here on because out of Egypt you come and I can, that's something we need to remember. That God is still the God of out of Egypt's, of taking people out of the slavery and giving them freedom. But I want you to see something else. I talked about the power of this deliverance. But if you read, we're, we're still in chapter 6 and if you start in verse 2, God says this, he said to Moses, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself fully known to them. God's also going to introduce something in this deliverance that I think is key. It is powerful. There is nothing that can stand against God. I, he said, I am Lord Almighty. That's the, the, the God El Shaddai. He said to Abraham, Moses and, or Abraham Isaac, and Jacob, I, I pretty much they knew me as the God who could do anything. That's fantastic. But he says, I want the Israelites now to know me in a little different fashion. Something, I'm still God Almighty, but he says, I want them to know me with this. And when we looked at it, we we're going through this series. That word Lord is the word Yahweh. It's the word self-existent. It's the word that, that's the personal name from God. And he goes on to say in, the, in verse 6, Therefore say to the Israelites, I am the Lord and I will bring you out. Here's what God is saying. This thing is not only powerful to deliver you, but more importantly, it's personal. This is about the fact that he goes on in verse number eight and seven and eight to say this, and I will take you as my own people. I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. He said, I want you to know who I am. I'm going to bring you out. You're going to be my people. You're going to know that I am the Lord. For almost 400 years, they got used to Egypt and they had forgotten. And for the most part, their, their following of God, the promised land was just a distant memory to them. And he said, but I want you to understand you are my people. I am your God. 
I want you to know that I am the Lord. And so when I deliver you, I'm delivering you not only with power. Pharaoh doesn't matter. I can take, I can knock him out anytime that I wish. That's not the issue. But I am powerful. But I want you to know that more importantly, it's the, it's the idea of this personal, this relationship. Victory, freedom in Israel's lives, that wasn't the ultimate goal. You say, wait a second, they wanted to be free, yes. But God was showing them victory, freedom. That's not the goal. The goal is knowing God. The goal is that I am your God and you are my people. The goal is getting you back where you know that I am the Lord. And knowing that, that changes everything. Yes, he is almighty. He can do all things. But he wants more than anything, these people to know that he is God, that he is the one that's in in charge, but that he is the one that loves them, that he is their God and they are his people. Please understand that. In all of this deliverance and the idea of being God's most important goal is not just to see you free. Those are the benefits. The goal is so that you have a personal knowledge relationship with him, that you know who he is, and that you're so whether whether this is a detour that you had nothing to do about and you just you're just walking along and the road just stops and you have to change course nothing maybe it's that or maybe maybe you made some bad choices that put you in the place where you're at either way here's what god wants you to know i want to deliver you i can i will deliver you that's my power but ultimately the goal is not to just deliver you my goal is so that you will know me as the lord so that we will have this personal relationship. In fact, here's how Jesus put it in John 17, verse 3. He said, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. God says the ultimate goal is not freedom. That's a benefit. The ultimate goal is knowing God. And when you know God, that's where you find freedom. It's the idea of this walk with him that brings the freedom that God has designed for you. So this deliverance in your life and in Israel's life, and all it's powerful. God can do anything, anytime. In fact, that's one of the things you're going to see through these next, the next part of this story is God was absolutely in control. God is going to do something now in the next few pages. Many of you have heard of them. They're called the Ten Plagues of Egypt, right? God brings these monstrous attacks on the, on the nation of Egypt to, to get them to... to uh, in the world's perspective, to let the people go, there was blood in the water, there was gnats, there was flies, there were frogs, there was hail, there were boils, there was plagues, there was darkness, there was all these just this monstrous plagues, and there was pain and suffering and, and all of these things and just destruction and the people, and God is just showing, listen, I'm in, and, and you see Pharaoh squirm a little bit, you know, every once in a while he'll go, oh, maybe I should let him go. Uh, no, not this time. And he kind of goes back and you see this, this battle. But what you've got to see through the story is God is in absolute control. God says it comes. God says it goes. Pharaoh says, I want the frogs to stay one more night. The frogs stay one more night. I mean, this, this whole story, what you see if you look at it is God is always in control of this. God's power is always in control of everything that's happening. Pharaoh knows it, whether he realizes it yet or not, Pharaoh is, is completely in God's control. But here's what we got to understand. When we look at these events of Egypt and all that God is doing, there is a reason. He's showing his power because he wants his people to personally know him, which leads us to this second thought or this third thought actually about deliverance. God's deliverance comes through faith and obedience. Here's where the story now shows us what's going to happen. Now, again, if you look, in, we're over in chapter 12 now of this story, page 51 in, in your books if you have them. And this next event is going to have a long-term effect on Israel. In fact, you'll notice the first couple of sentences, this beca- they actually changed their calendar based on this next event. This becomes their new year. This becomes everything starts here at this point for Israel because of what's going to happen on this evening. But again, we're looking at the lower story perspective, and there's some unusual things that are happening in chapter 12. God says, I'm going to deliver you with great power. And he shows his power in all these incredible plagues. 
So you got to, if I'm Israel, I'm thinking, okay, so God, what are we going to do? Are you going to let us destroy the armies? Are you going to give us all this great weaponry? Are we going to, you're going to call down fire and kill them? Or we're going to walk out? How is this going to happen, God? And God uses something that would seem completely unorthodox to us. It's a, it's a strange battle plan at the, at the least. But here's what you've got to understand. As we're going through chapter 12, what God does is he changes the focus. The focus is no longer on Pharaoh, on the enemy. The focus is now on God. The focus is going to turn from, okay, what, what's God going to do to Pharaoh? How's he going to get rid of Pharaoh? What's he going to do to him? And he says, now, folks, before we leave, I want you to focus on me. I want you to focus on my plan. I want you to focus on what my design is for you. He's not telling them we're going to have some strikes at your work. You're going to do, stand up and do protests, and we're not, going to, we're, we're not going to overtake the enemy. We don't have any spies sneaking in. It's not. I don't want you to focus on defeating the enemy now. I want you to focus on me. In chapter 12, he, completely, he says, I'm going to get you out of Egypt, but he says, I'm going to do it in a way where it's because of what I tell you to do, and you follow my directions. Look, if you would, in the first part of chapter 12. Here's, what, here's God's battle plan for delivering Egypt out of Egypt. Each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. And the animals you choose must be a year old without defect, and you may take them from the sheep or the goats. He goes on to say, then you take some of the blood, put it on the sides and the tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. And on the same night, notice this, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The battle is always God's. It's not about me defeating the enemy. It's about God doing his work. But did you notice how God said this is going to happen? I want you to, the way this is going to happen is, and, and in this, God is showing them there's two deliverances going to happen. You're going to be set free, but you're also going to see how that there was a deeper issue going on here than your physical freedom. There's something else going on that needs to happen in your life. There's, a, there, there's another issue involved, and I want you to be able to see both of these as I deliver you from this freedom. The first one is, I'm going to deliver you from Egypt. They're going to be destroyed. But then he says, but I want you to do this with this lamb for a very specific purpose, because the next verse says, and the blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. God says, I'm going to go through Egypt, and I'm going to kill every firstborn son in Egypt. Folks, that's, that's a horrendous plague. Think about this. Every firstborn, he says, whether they're kings or slaves, whether they are uh, the animals, every firstborn, of, every firstborn in Egypt, all of those that are part of Egypt, the firstborn is going to die. I'm going to pass through Egypt, and I'm going to, destroy, I'm going to bring that kind of destruction. However, if you... Do what I told you to do, and, you, and we'll talk about this sacrifice in a minute. You make this happen, and I will pass over you. That, that phrase, if you haven't caught it already, becomes quite interesting. That phrase, passing over, becomes a picture that now is going to be seen throughout the Scriptures into the early New Testament. This word Passover becomes an actual feast that the Jews will commemorate every year, and, that, and when they do, it's coming back to this night. This night when God delivers them from Egypt, it all started right here. Now, we just saw the details. Look down at verse 21. This is what really happened that night. He said, go at once, select the animals for your families, slaughter the Passover lamb, take a bunch of hyssop, dip it in the blood in the basin, and put some of the blood on the top and on both sides of the door frame. None of you shall go out of the door of your house until morning, and when the Lord goes through the land to strike down the Egyptians, he will see the blood on the tops and the sides of the doorframe and will pass over that doorway, and he will not permit the destroyer to enter your house and strike you down. So let's just see if we can picture it. Okay, we have this door. We have what Israel is told to do there, to take a lamb. And if you'll notice the word in, in this version, and many of them say basin, and so it could be a bowl like this, but many commentators understand that the word basin is also a word used later for the word threshold or doorway. So the picture is probably this. They took a lamb, your old lamb, and they were to sacrifice him on the threshold of their home. They were to cut his neck and let the blood come out so that from that lamb, whether it's a basin or the lamb himself, then they dip a thing of hyssop in this lamb's blood, and then they're to put it on the sides they're to put it on the top, and then the blood at the bottom where the lamb is. 
Now, that may not mean a lot to you, but let's think back to some things we've already learned. Genesis chapter number 3. We know that in order to cover the nakedness of the people, what had to happen? An animal had to die and the skins to cover their nakedness. God has already set a precedence that there has to be a sacrifice in place for you. Do you see what God's showing here? Israel, the enemy is not the big deal. I'll take care of Pharaoh. But there's a bigger deal involved, and that is that there is sin in your life, and there's only one way to take that care of that. And I will going to pass through Egypt, and they're going to destroy the firstborn. But when I see that blood, I'll pass over you, and destruction will not touch your household. That, I hope you all understand the, the significance of that, that what this means is the people had to have two things. They had to have faith that as odd as this was, this was their way of deliverance. Think about that. God, are you kidding me? Give us a sword. Give us a spear. Give us a hailstorm and knock them all out. Just get rid of them. You want us to kill a lamb? They had to have faith that this was God's way. And by faith, then what do they have to do? They had to apply the blood to the door. You could believe all day, okay, God, that makes sense. But unless they took that hyssop and unless they applied that blood to the door, then there was no deliverance for that household. They had to trust, and once they trusted, they had to act on what God said. They had to, put it, they had to literally apply the blood to the door. Just believing that it was good was one thing. That's huge. This is odd, but it'll happen. But then they had to literally apply the blood for it to happen. And notice what the Bible says. The Israelites did just what the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron, according to Exodus verse 28. They did it. The Israelites did just what God said. So around Israel that night, lambs were slain at the door, the blood was put on the doorposts, and God was ready then to deliver his people. If you go to Hebrews, here's how it says about Moses. By faith, Moses kept the Passover and the application of blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn would not touch the firstborn of Israel, Hebrews eleven twenty eight. That means by faith, I believe this is what God said, but by faith means that I actually have to apply the blood. I had to do what God told me to do, and by doing that, God promised a deliverance. It was a literal application of what God said to do. They had to trust and obey that this is what God says, and that is the course of our life. For God to do what he wants to do in our lives, we have to trust that he knows what he's doing. We've got to focus not on ourselves, not on where we're at, not on our issues, and not even on the enemy. We focus on him. And God, where do you want me to go? And we obey him and watch him deliver us from whatever it is that God knows needs to happen in our lives. Now, as you keep moving on, not only is deliverance from more than just Egypt, this is deliverance from sin and bondage. But understand, these people we're also putting something in place. Just as if this whole thing from Egypt is a picture of all of us in slavery, this becomes a picture for us to remember for all time. This becomes a picture that when we move into the New Testament, let me introduce you to a man. John chapter 1 and verse 29, the Bible says about Jesus, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Second Corinthians, or 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 7, look at this. Christ is our Passover Lamb. And he was sacrificed. First Peter said, Christ is a lamb without blemish or defect. He meets the qualifications of the lamb. He was without defect. He was a lamb that was sent as the Passover. What we're seeing here, people, this is God showing us from the early stage of this Bible that there is a way to bring you back, but it comes through a sacrifice, and the sacrifice has a name, and his name is Jesus. Jesus died for our sins. Jesus died to cover our sins, to release us from the bondage that sin has done in our lives. Many commentators, and I'm sure you've already seen the picture or you've thought about it, but just picture this in your mind. You have the, you have the blood on the top, the head. You have the blood on the hands. You have the blood on the side, and you have blood at the feet. The Passover lamb was a picture of Jesus, was a picture of the cross of Jesus Christ. It was a picture of what God was going to do thousands of years later to give the whole world an opportunity to know a relationship with him. And it is, yes, to bring us freedom, but the point is so that we could know him again, to bring us back into relationship with God. But knowing that, believing that, saying, oh, I believe in Jesus, oh, I believe God, I believe in him, that's one thing. But remember, that didn't happen until they were literally applied that blood to the door. Do you realize what John chapter 1 and verse 12 said? Jesus says this, As many as received him, 
To them, he gives the right. To those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. This thing of salvation is a gift. This thing of deliverance is a gift that God, but until you're willing to say, God, I trust you, I have faith in you, and you'll let him apply that, that blood to your heart and to your life, you can believe in God, you can come to church every time the doors are open. All of those things religiously mean nothing until this blood has been applied to the, to the door of your heart, been applied to the door of your life. Deliverance doesn't happen until your focus is on doing what God has, and you receive that gift of eternal life. That's, that's where it all comes back to. This deliverance is a measure of God's, what God says, and we have to have faith and obey. The last thing, though, that I want you to get from this is God's deliverance should be celebrated and remembered. If you understand what we just read in this story in, in Exodus 12, Moses was given these instructions, he gave it to the people before anything happened that delivered them from Egypt. He says, actually, in verse number 14, as, we keep, as you keep on reading, this is a day for you to commemorate. For the generations to come, you shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord, a lasting ordinance. This is what you're to do. This is what's called the Passover. But all of this was to be done, and they hadn't seen any deliverance yet. All they knew is, God said I will do it. By faith you do this, and you trust that I will take care of you. And they actually set a, a working model in place that from that point on, they were to do this. But it, all this happened before the, the, the exodus ever took place, before there was any deliverance in place. This is what God had told them to do. And, and that's, God, that's not only faith, but it's also then at the, at the point when it was over, from that point on, the Israelites still celebrate what they call the Passover. And why do they celebrate the Passover? Because God said, I want you to remember what I did that night when I delivered you from your bondage, when I set you free. Remember the deliverance. Remember what I did. Remember that sacrifice. And you don't get, you never get, don't get saved all over again. None of that changes. What it is, is folks, you're remembering what Jesus did and you keep that in your minds. Why? Well, for one, you're remembering what God has done. It, it reminds you of who you are and whose you are. It reminds you of what God has done. It keeps the morale strong. It also helps you to recognize that this isn't about you. This is about God. This is about what he has done. And what you're going to find in the history of Egypt, they never were in slavery again to Egypt. But they were in slavery again to some other people. They never went back to Egypt. But there were times under Assyria, under Babylon, under Rome, when they had to refresh their memory about these verses and say, God delivered us out of Egypt once, and if we turn back to him, he can do it again. And there was a reminder, this Passover, every time was a reminder that God did it once, he can deliver us again, and God can come back and do whatever. And, and that's a reminder, is to keep in place the understanding that God is still the God who brings us out of Egypt. But never forget that this is a picture of Jesus when he died on the cross. And what I find so amazing as the Bible tells us in Luke chapter 22, that one of the last things that Jesus did is he was setting up with his men in this upper room a thing called the Passover. And the Bible says they were told to commemorate the Passover. It tells us in Luke 22, it's starting, he says, then came the day in love and bread on which the Passover was, had to be sacrificed. And Jesus sent Peter and John. He said, go make preparations for us to eat the Passover. Very interesting. We understand where we're at. This is now thousands of years later, but they are celebrating this event that was set up at the night that they were delivered from Egypt. But what happens on that night is Jesus now sets up something before it ever happens for all of us who will experience his deliverance to remember what he did. We call it the Lord's Supper. Next Sunday, you're going to see part of our worship service next Sunday is we're going to participate in the Lord's Supper. We're going to remember the death, the burial, and resurrection of Christ. And here's what Jesus said on that night. He took bread, he gave thanks, he broke it, he gave it to them saying, this is my body given for you. In the same way after supper, he took the cup saying, this is the cup and the new covenant of my blood which is poured out for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And remember, this happened before the cross, before it ever, this wasn't a look back, and let's remember, he said, before this ever happens, I'm going to die for your sins. I become the Passover lamb, and I want you from then on to remember that, to remember that I delivered you. But here's what I love. The people of Israel, they were remembering a deliverance, an event. What Jesus tells us is, yes, remember the event when Jesus saved you, but more than anything, I want you to remember the deliverer. Do this in remembrance of not just the fact you were delivered, but now it all full circle comes personal. Remember me. 
Remember, I died for you. Remember, you have a relationship with me through the, through the Father. I am, I am not only remembering the salvation, but remember most of all the one who brought you that rescue. So, as we wrap up this today, this whole idea of deliverance, God delivers the people from Egypt in these uncanny ways, but he does it to show us that we too need deliverance. Whether it's, it's the, you stand at the point now where you, you, you don't have the confidence that you're one of God's children, you've not accepted his, his blood to forgive you of your sins, God says, if you'll receive my gift, I'll save you. Allow me to apply that blood to your life and I'll save you from your sins. Or maybe as a Christian, you never can go back to Egypt. You're, you're always one of God's kids, but maybe you find yourself in, enslaved or in need of rescue or help. And it's the same thing. Focus on God and say, God, be merciful to me. Deliver me. Help me, Father. Where is it that God has spoken to you today? What area of deliverance has God brought to light in your heart today that you and he need to communicate about? Would you bow your heads with me, please? With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, we focus on this incredible journey that God has taken this, these Israelites through. And that night, he's going to do an amazing thing, but it all comes down to this. God can do anything and deliver from any, any form, but most of all, God wants them to know him. Today, that's exactly what God wants for you. He wants you to know him. He wants your walk with him to be personal, to be real to be growing, to be strong. Do you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, first of all? And as his, one of his kids, are you experiencing that, the freedom of walking in his journey by allowing him to, to direct your path by faith to believe in what God has told you to do and to obey it? Father, I don't know what deliverance means in some of these people's lives today, but I know you do. I know you have the power and I know you want you pursue them, you want them to know you, but I pray that today, in a way only you can, you've got the attention of somebody. And there's someone here today that's crying out right now to you and saying, God, I want to know freedom. God, I want to know a relationship with you. God, whatever that means in their life, God, please draw them, speak to them, help them to see that it all comes through the cross of Jesus Christ, our Passover land. God, make this real to them. And for Christians in whatever area of life that we, today we need to know that truth. Make it real to us, I pray. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed. Stefan begins to, to sing a part of a song. And as she does, spend time with God. Speak to him. Call out to him. But if you're here today and you've never accepted that gift of eternal life, you believe in God, sure, but have you truly ever said, God, be merciful to me, save me, Come in and give me that hope of eternal life. Have, has, have you experienced that in your heart today? If not, would you call out to him and say, God, save me. I know you died for me. I know I'm a sinner. Forgive me. We'd love to pray with you if you'd come. So Stephan begins to sing, if God has called you, there'll be those here that would love to pray with you if, if God moves in your heart. But I want us to spend some time just talking to him about whatever deliverance looks like in our life today as the music begins. Grace